0: This is an AMI podcast.
1: Are you ready? Go. Let's go from AMI Central. Now circling in the neutral zone. Here's the pitch on the way. 36 yards for the win. This here comes a big chance. The shot is this the tiger.
0: The neutral zone. Goal! Goal! oh my God! This is as good as it gets. Now, here's your host, two-time Paralympian Rock Richardson. Welcome to another edition of the Neutral Zone. I am indeed your host, Brock Richardson. Let me tell you about what is coming up on today's program. We release another Canadian Paralympic Committee Summit interview. Today, you're going to hear from Danielle Ellis, who is from White Rock, British Columbia. In the second half of the program, Cameron and I are going to chat about whether or not Olympic Games should be left for amateur athletes only. It's going to be a fun show. Let's get into our headlines for this week.
2: Neutral Zone
0: Headlines.
2: The Women's World Cup of Soccer has come to an end. And we congratulate Spain for winning the final score was one to nothing, And this is the first time that Spain has won the World Cup in their history. The nation also has won Under-17 Tournament. And they've also won the Under-20 Tournament. And so this means that they have won three international competitions in the last little while. So congratulations to uh, the Women's World Cup of Soccer for putting on a phenomenal tournament. And of course, for Spain for winning it all. It was a success for Canada at the Para Road Cycling World Championships. They took home six total medals on the road to discipline, one gold and five bronze. As for the track discipline, they took home another five medals, which were one gold, three silver, and one bronze. Canadian and Nugget star player Jamal Murray will not be attending the FIBA World Cup championships, which is set to begin later this week. His reasoning behind the decision is that it was a long season after winning the NBA championships, and he is still being cautious from his ACL injury, and that was suffered in 2021.
0: Those are your headlines for this week. And uh, I thought today for our chat topic, we would discuss something kind of a little bit fun. So I want to know from you, Cameron, if there was a team or an athlete you could coach, who would it be and why? I will let you go first, and then I will give you my choices that I made.
2: Uh, well, the team that I would like to coach um, To see if I could get more out of them, of course, would be, be my beloved Toronto Maple Leafs um, because I think that they have all the potential in the world. Um, however, they're not able to get over that hump and they kind of got over the hump last year. However, um, it was totally, you know, bombarded with a, a, a whimper because they didn't do very well in the second round at all. So, I think I would really like to be able to coach the Maple Leafs to see whether or not I'd be able to uh help them get over the hump and maybe make it as far as the Stanley Cup Finals. Um, so that's one team I would like to. Um, and the other team, once again, I'm a homer, I admit it. Uh however, um, because uh Charlie Montoyo, I've been a um you know, hard on him and John Schneider. I've now starting to get really hard on him as well. Um, I would love to coach the Toronto Blue Jays or be the manager of the Toronto Blue Jays uh, because they're not meeting up to their expectations either. And I think a big part of it in both John Schneider's case and in Montoyo's case is that they didn't manage the bullpen very well at all. So I like to get a crack at that bullpen. I would like to get a crack at those starters, maybe get them to go a little bit longer, um, throwing in a game, a.k.a. Kikuchi. You knew I had to get Kikuchi's name in here somewhere. So um, I'd like to be able to stretch out some of those starters to save the bullpen, and I think they could really do well. You have both Schneider now and his predecessor, um, Montoya, were able uh, to – they weren't doing that. So those are the two teams. I know you said one, but I gave you two.
0: That's fine. I'm going to give you uh, two different athletes. But before I give you my choices, I'm going to ask you if Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment came and said, Cameron, I'm going to give you one year. I want to see what you do with this team. I'm going to give you, let's say, uh, $2 million for that one year. I'm going to give you $2 million. But I want to know first, what is the first thing you do? You say, what do you do with the Toronto Maple Leafs to make them get over that hump?
2: I would say that in the playoffs, the opposing team does this rectangular box right around the net. And you are not able to get a good shot to be able to penetrate that rectangular box that is in front of the uh, opposing team's uh, goalie. So I would say you're going to have to... um, Get a few bruises and get in within that rectangular square or rectangular area that they've put in there and you're going to have to stay there you're going to have to take the punishment somebody's going to have to shoot it and then you're going to have to pick up the trash or get the deflection to get it in the neck because i really feel that they're a perimeter team, the Toronto Maple Leafs, and that's why they are not able to go too far in the playoffs because they don't go in the dirty areas and they need to get in those dirty areas to score.
0: Very well put. So for me, I have two athletes. And the first one I'm going to give you is a real sort of obvious choice. And I'm going to give you reasons why. Uh, The first one I would pick would be a current player. And I would love to pick Connor McDavid, who is the forward for the Edmonton Oilers. And the reason I would pick him is because I just like to be a fly on the wall to be able to sort of see what he's like as a person. What makes him tick? What makes him do the things that he does? What kind of teammate is he? All those things. And if I could have any part in in sort of not changing his game, but adding to it and and saying this is what I'd like to see you do, I I would love that. And can I sit here and say, is there something I'd like Connor McDavid to do differently? No, I'd probably just tell him, keep doing what you're doing. But if I could watch him on a daily basis and maybe tweak something that maybe I'm not seeing as an outsider, then that's what I would do. The second sort of choice that I would have is a newly drafted Chicago Blackhawk Connor Bedard and the reason I picked Connor Bedard is because I'd love to be able to be part of an athlete's life and uh, before they get things going and sort of be in that impressionable stage where I can say you know um, you're early and so they're more receptive to ideas thoughts etc and for me those are the two choices because it's hard to get into an athlete once they get into their habits and their all the things that they do it's hard to crack in with new ideas sometimes so i'd like to take a crack at Connor Bedard and i'm using Connor Bedard as sort of my pick but i also want to say that i would pick any newly drafted athlete in any sport for the same reason due to the fact that they're just impressionable and able to uh, to, to, to sort of be more receptive to ideas Cameron, your thoughts on sort of the the two that I said?
2: Two that you said. Uh, I love what you're saying about Connor Bedard uh, because being able to get, um, you know, a a player that is just starting to learn the NHL. And like you said, they're like you worded it so well. I I can't really expand on it too much other than to agree with you. And I would love to be a coach to, you know, make that person uh, impressionable or to teach them because there's no better feeling than when you're able to give knowledge to somebody and when they take that knowledge and they apply it and then you see them thriving, um, to know that you're a small part of that uh, um, success, um, there's no better feeling in the world. So you worded it so well um, about Conor Bedard and I would love to be able to coach someone like that too. Um, Connor McDavid, He's the best player in the world uh you know he's getting a lot of assists before and he's he like nah, this year i want to get more goals so then he got more goals like the dude can do everything but like all team games it takes a team to win so um he has to figure out you know how to make his teammates better um in order to be able to um you know get team wins um so uh you know, he, he's gotten as far as, I think, the second round, maybe the conference finals. I forget, but, um, yeah, it's...
0: Yeah, they got to the conference final a couple of years ago. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So,
2: it's all about getting the Holy Grail in, uh, in hockey. That's the Stanley Cup. So, um, you know, hopefully uh, McDavid gets there because um, at the end of the day, you know, if the Leafs are out, I'm cheering for a Canadian team. So
0: Yeah, I'm like that as well. I, I cheer for – and if there are multiple after the Leafs are out, then, uh, then I'll cheer for, you know, both. I'll have one more rooting interest than the other. And it tends to be more of an Eastern Conference uh, team if there is one uh whether well, canadian, there's so
2: many canadian teams in the eastern Conference. yeah
0: right exactly <laughs> and, and the time difference of games and et cetera, things like that oh good point i thought i thought too that like if i came on here and said oh yeah the the athlete that i'd love to coach is connor mcdavid uh you or anyone listening or watching would be like yeah that was the easy answer so i i had to come up with one that is different and uh, again i think the caveat with Connor Bedard yeah. is suggesting that um, you know any. Well, he's going to be a generational player, player too
2: so that's yeah. an easy player yeah. to pick uh, I would have been more impressed Brock if you picked a new player that's like a fourth line winger uh, that really asked her in the minutes and then if you said well this person you know new person they're impressionable but no of course you had to go with uh, what's going to be an impressionable or a generational player possibly
0: yeah uh, so before we move off this uh, chat segment, uh, what about a parasport? Is there a parasport that you would say, oh, I'd like to give a crack at that as a coach? Is it the easy answer of hockey or is it something else?
2: No, I'm going to go with something else. Um, I don't know. Um, maybe archery, para archery, ah. um, especially like the people that have to do it with their feet and are able to, like, pull it back and then throw the arrow uh, or not throw it, but sling the arrow. I don't know what the proper term is, but I just always found that amazing uh, to be able to do that. So to to be able to coach or to learn how a person does that, um, I would love to research that or learn how people are able to do that.
0: Yeah. For me, uh, the, the sport that I would choose is uh, goalball. I think that oh, goalball, goalball is a sport that is very, very unique. There's no sport like it. There's no sister version of of goalball that's in the able-bodied community. It is one in its own. And I'd really like to meet some of the athletes and talk to some of the athletes and figure out how goalball works because the way that they have to give up their body to stop – the, the ball from going into the net and only and purely listening th- through their ears and not using their eyes to find out what direction the ball is going or not going. And, of course, goalball is the sport that you would throw the ball from one end of the, the gym to the other, and there's uh, three or four people in each net, and their object is to stop the ball from going in. So uh, there is a little bit of mashup there, but for me, just, there would have to be so many... um. So many things, intricacies that you would have to figure out how to make this work. And and as somebody who is visually impaired, I think I could learn a lot from from athletes. But I also think I could give a little bit just from the lack of vision and and having you know your 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 hearing heightened because of that. Just a few things that I would like to try there as well. I, a lot of people will say to me again, the easy answer would be bocce. No, for me, I'd want to try something completely You've done completely different because coaching that would be like, no, I'd rather just get in the chair and do it myself, um, as selfish as that may sound. But it's just easy. I want to go with something that I've never had a background in being able to say, I've done this and I want to see where this is going to go. So I thought that was an interesting way to kick off the show and some food for thought for topic and if you want to weigh in on what we said about coaching or what you would want to uh you know coach or play or an athlete you want to coach please weigh in on our social media which can be found right here and welcome back to the neutral zone ami broadcast booth and we are set to get this ball game underway the first pitch brought to you by brock richardson's twitter account at neutral zone br <laughs> First pitch, strike. And hey, gang, why not strike up a Twitter chat with Claire Buchanan for the neutral zone? Find her at neutral zone CB. And there's a swing and a chopper out to second base, right at Claire. She picks up the ball, throws it over to first base for a routine out. And fans, there is nothing routine about connecting with Cam and Josh from the Neutral Zone. At Neutral Zone, Cam J and at J. Watson 200. Now that's a winning combination. And this Oregon interlude is brought to you by AMI-audio on Twitter. Get in touch with the Neutral Zone. Type in at AMI-audio. We released our second to last Canadian Paralympic Committee Summit interview done back in March. This time we hear from sitting volleyball athlete, from White Rock, British Columbia, Danielle Ellis. Please enjoy the interview. So I understand at one time you studied to be a paramedic. Can you tell us about that?
1: Yeah, um, back in uh, 20. 12, I took a break from volleyball um, and went back to school. Um, I did a little bit of um, an undergrad, and then I went and just realized that what my passion was at that time in my life, um, about 2014, uh, was to be a paramedic. So I started working towards uh, my primary care paramedic certificate um, and did uh, my emergency medical responder. And then, um, yeah, went through my primary care paramedic in the spring of 2015 um, and graduated that in the summer and then started working for the ambulance service in the fall of
0: 2015. So the million dollar question is, what do you think is more tough, being a paramedic or an athlete?
1: Oh my goodness, I think both are tough. (laughs) Um, Just very different, I think. Um, But I think to something that I've really uh, grown with and really worked towards is using what I've learned from sport in my job as a paramedic and a a dispatcher for the ambulance service and then used what I learn um, in you know working in high stress environments in the ambulance service to do what I can as an athlete and be prepared and work hard during those high stress high pressure points as well
0: So was there ever a moment where you like pulled on your paramedic skills or vice versa pulled on your athlete skills and interchange them?
1: I think so. A lot of the time. Um, Right now, I mean, I'm working with both mental performance coaches in sport as well as like counselors and psychologists, um, just like being a human being and working in the ambulance service. So I find a lot of the time uh, the skills that I'm learning in one transfer over to the other. I'm able to, you know, calm myself down in high stress environments on the court um, and, you know, be able to take a breath or, you know, do a little meditation or do whatever I need to do to be able to get to that ideal performance state in sport. And then, you know, in the job, just working really hard to be able to maintain a high stress environment.
0: I would say most people start their career at a young age and you were this way for sitting volleyball. How did you balance that versus I want to be a kid?
1: Mm. I think, yeah. I mean, I think that I just grew up in sport and sport was just my life. Um, So I started on the national team when I was 16 years old. Um, And like I said, I took a break at about 22, I think, Um, and then went back to school and did some life things and then came back as an adult, um, you know, at 31 now. And um, I think it's just given me a lot of different life experiences. I think I'm a different athlete than I was then uh, when I am now and I think it's just those different life experiences being able to take a step back now that I'm an adult and you know playing sport because yeah as a kid there's just so much to learn and so much to go through and so much you know hard work and um, you know difficult situations that you that you go through as an athlete and as a human being and just I think I've grown and I've learned from those and to be who I am now.
0: You are the captain of the sitting Volleyball team uh, what would you say is the best thing about being the captain of the team?
1: I, I mean honestly I think it's such an honour um, to be able to represent my country just with the leaf on my jersey um, but being you know known and seen as the captain of the Canadian sitting volleyball team is, is a pretty cool thing. Um, You know, I feel like people look up to you and, you know, people trust you. And I think that that's really important to me. And I just always want to work hard to, to show them that I am that hardworking individual that can lead them.
0: And what would you say then is the toughest thing about being the captain and wearing that Maple Leaf?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that it does come with another, um, another row of you know stress um you know you're just you're held higher accountable than anybody else and you want to be the the best athlete and you want to be the best teammate that you can all the time you know there's no off switch ever and so it's just yeah i think it's a good thing though at the same time it really just pushes you to be the best athlete that i could and i think maybe without the captain stripe i maybe wouldn't be the athlete that i am now
0: you guys are uh, quite highly ranked going into the paralympic games and 2024. Can you speak to what it's like keeping your team at such a high level?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's really cool. Um, I mean, we came seventh in Rio in 2016, um, and we now hold a third place ranking um, in the world for sitting volleyball. Uh, We play second. a silver medal in the last World Championships in 2022. Um, so just seeing how far we've grown and how far we've come is really cool. But now it is just that there's always pressure on us. Every team wants to beat us now. Um, you know, they thought they could before, but now it's just us being able to push ourselves. And I think we hold each other to a, a really high standard. We know what we can do with the ball. And so there's yeah, I think just holding each other accountable is the biggest thing.
0: Outside of the obvious uh, equipment that needs to come with you on these trip, what's the one thing that you say, I have to have this in my bag when I travel?
1: My coffee mug.
0: (laughs) I love it. (laughs) We all need a little coffee.
1: Yeah, you need coffee wherever you go in the world. And so I bring a coffee mug and a drip and a pour over and coffee everywhere, everywhere I go. It's important.
0: (laughs) Thank you so much for spending time with us. We really appreciate it.
1: Yeah, thank you.
0: That was sitting volleyball athlete Danielle Ellis from White Rock, British Columbia. And again, that interview was done back in March. If you want to get a hold of us by phone, here's how you can do it. If you want to leave a message for the Neutral Zone,
1: call now 1-866-509-4545. And don't forget to give us permission to use your message on the air. Let's get ready to leave a voicemail!
0: One of the things that we do, or I do, as a producer of this program, with the help of my lovely panel, is we come up with some uh, backup segments to have discussions about. And we came up with uh, five or six of them in the last little while. And we haven't been able to use them because our guests have come and done what they've been asked lovingly by us, of course, to do. And we appreciate that. But one of the topics that we had was this one that we're going to bring to you today. And I thought it would be sort of a fun one to to have with uh, Cameron here today. And so we're going to talk a little bit about the Olympic Games and whether or not it should be left out for amateurs only um a lot of people some people like the pros that are at at olympic games some people don't some people are indifferent where does cameron lie on the pros versus amateurs in the olympic games
2: probably right down the middle (laughs)
0: and it's not oh he's gonna play switzerland play
2: switzerland well i I can see both sides um i think that the professionals they already have their leagues so they should maybe uh stay out of the amateur spotlight and the amateurs should be the ones to be in uh, things like the olympics um because they don't except for the world championships um they don't really have the spotlight on them uh, like the NHL does uh, 82 games a year or the NFL does 18 games a year or whatever it is with the NFL. Um, so in, in one sense, I feel like the, it should be the amateurs cause sh- they should get the entire spotlight and be able to show their stuff uh, to the world. Um, uh, saying that though, uh, like I've said probably many times on the show before um, it's all about the almighty dollar at the end of the day. And, you know if the Olympics, if they can get more viewers or if they 're able to get more uh, money advertisements because professional athletes uh, play whether it 's the n b a uh, basketball in the summer or the n h l players in the winter, um, you know they 've got to do what 's best I guess for the Olympics to be able to make money, but they make enough money as it is, so do they really need more money um, but the other side of the coin, as far as i 'm concerned is is that When do you really get to see the best players um, play for their country and uh, perform in front of the world? Um, With the NHL, uh, you know, the only other time that they really do that um, is if they have the World Cup of Hockey. And I can't even remember the last time they had the World Cup of Hockey. And In
0: around 2007 seven, or so? something around yeah. there. Um, yeah.
2: And then, you know, it's a two week uh, best on best tournament, but like, are they still really trying their hardest to win? Um, You know, I, I think that could be questionable whether they do or they don't. Um You have the all star games where you have the best players, but they certainly are not playing their best, they're not checking. Their, it's just like a shinny game to show their skills. Um, so to have the best on best in the Olympics where everybody is really trying, um, you know, checking and doing all the things that they need to do to win, I think the Olympics, for, at least for the NHL, that's the only time you get to see it. And I'm pretty sure for the NBA – that's the only time you would get to see it too. So as far as the best-on-best competition where they're actually trying, I really like to see it because I think it's great NBA action, or not NBA action, but it's great basketball in the Olympics and it's great hockey in the Olympics when the professionals are there.
0: Yeah, I think um, the thing that those on the side of the fence that say, ah, I'll leave it to the amateurs and, you know, the the professionals are, are stealing the limelight I think what they forget is that a medal at the Paralympic Games is like nothing anyone can describe. doesn't matter whether you've been in a professional league for five minutes, 20 years, or anything in between. For some reason, that medal and that podium hold such a different feeling. It holds such a different moment that you really can't, recreate uh, in the stanley cup or in the nba final yes it has different emotions sure because it's more of a grind but i think the biggest difference is you're representing your country and you're representing where you grew up where you were born your country pride and i think that's sort of the difference uh, for me and i think people don't really understand the weight and i'm not talking like actual weight because some of those medals do do weigh a lot, but the weight that a medal holds, you know, proverbially, is something that we can't really describe, Cameron. And I think that's part of the reason why the professionals get so involved and want to be part of the Olympic Games.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And playing for Canada or any country, um, that is a phenomenal. Uh, you know, I, I can't even imagine. It. I've never competed for my country before, but that must be a, a Beautiful honor to be able to compete for your country, knowing that you are trying to win, uh, for your teammates and even more so your country. And that's why they do it. And that's why, you know, the Olympics, it's supposed to be the best on best, um, not necessarily the best amateur on the best amateur Um, you know, it should be the best on best. And if that's the NHL players or um, you know, the KHL players or whomever, it should be best on best. And uh, that's the way they have it set up right now. And I think uh, that they will for um, you know, the foreseeable future.
0: uh, Let me uh, paint the audience and you a bit of a picture in 2008. I participated at the Beijing Paralympic Games. I was a 17-year-old naive, immature, some would argue <laughs> stupid, um, you know, put no, put, put the put the put the word wherever you'd like to. And I remember the the feeling of being in the Paralympic village and the draw to the water cube which was where they did the diving for the olympics and the swimming for the paralympic uh games and it was such a spectacle because it literally looked like an ice cube but in a building they had the little divots and it would light up and it was a big big deal and i never competed in that because uh, i don't swim because i would sink like a stone if i tried to swim uh well, you could do the diving <laughs> you out of your chair? yes, I could uh I still think I would make too much of a splash, but uh, <laughs> I never tried it, so maybe that's my new uh new thing I might think about is diving or flopping as it might be um but uh we we went in there one one day and we just we we had some time off, and we went in there because my at home uh massage therapist um was with the uh, Canadian women, or the Canadian swimming team. And we came in to see her in the water cube and things like that. And uh, she said, oh, you should check out some of the swimming. You know, there's a nice athletes area here and, you know, come sit and and watch for a bit. It's It's really great. And I remember sitting there watching, you know, five or six different races And I didn't know what race was what or whatever. I just kind of watched for a few minutes. And then they said over the PA system, we're going to give a medal presentation for whatever classification it was uh, from the swim uh, earlier on today. And they said in the bronze medal position was Canadian. And then they announced her name. And and in the silver medal position was Canadian. And they announced her name. And in the gold medal position was Canadian. And they announced her name as well. And I remember, I don't remember the names of the athletes, as you can tell. But I remember that moment when you watched the three Canadian flags rise up from the bottom all the way to the top while hearing your national anthem. And hearing my national anthem in a venue that I was miles and miles and miles away from home and hearing my national anthem and thinking, wow, this is the moment. I am far away from from Canada, but I feel like a piece of home. I didn't know any of those athletes at the moment. I went and met with them afterwards and shook their hands and congratulated them and all that. But before that, I didn't know these people, but I felt connected because – They were from the same nation I was from. They just had a moment and I feel that I was a part of their moment because I was there to witness something historic. You don't often see a lot of athletes who are competing in the same, you know, category from the same nation and yet they went you know, bronze, silver, gold. And, and just, it was an amazing moment. And I think there's nothing better than hearing your national anthem so far away from home camp.
2: Well, absolutely. And I think you just described it perfectly is even though you're not the one competing, when you uh, see a Canadian athlete competing out, at whatever it is, swimming, running, whatever sport they're competing in, uh, you're like, at least I am, when I'm watching the TV and I'm seeing them, I'm like, go Canada, or like the person's name, and I'm yelling and I'm screaming at the screen uh, because I want them to do well. Uh, and then when they win, like I'm jumping up and down, and yeah, let's go. And then seeing them on the podium in the old Canada, like sometimes, you know, I'm able to stand, so I'll stand up and I'll always take my hat off, sorry for my hair. Um, you know, and I'll put my uh, hat over my chest and, you know, and I'll be singing no old Canada too. And it, it's like, I'm right there with them, or it's like, I'm the one that competed. And obviously I'm not the one that competed, but y- you feel like when it's Canada, you just feel so passionate and you feel that you're right there with them, or you're the one competing. And it's such a great feeling to have, um, you know, when you experience that.
0: Yeah, no, it's, and that's why I wanted to paint the picture. And, you know, being on watching it on TV, I get the same feeling. Uh, but watching it in person and watching the historic moment that I watched was something I will never forget. And I, I still have those feelings as I'm telling you, the audience and Cameron about what happened, because it's just that moment where you just think, you know, I'm here. I'm a part of something. And I, and I think that that helps sort of, sort of put the groundwork into why professionals want to be part of the Olympic games. It's not to take away from the limelight of the amateurs. It's not. It's, it's literally because it's country pride. And no matter whether you make millions or hundreds of dollars, your country is something that you will always come back to and be a part of. And I think that that's part of it as well. I remember when I met Chantal Petitclair, uh, mm-hmm. Canadian wheelchair racer in 2008. And I mean, she's ridiculously decorated. And I, I remember being starstruck and thinking that's Chantal Petit And I still, when I see her on CBC with Scott Russell doing the Paralympic coverage, I was like, I know this person. I competed in the same games as Chantal Petit And she's not your, your, your conventional professional But for all intents and purposes, for what she's accomplished, she is a professional. And so sometimes you get those starstruck moments of this is so-and-so. I mean, I can imagine if I saw Usain Bolt, I would feel the same way because of what he brought. Like, there's just tons. So, again, I reiterate the fact that I don't necessarily think it's... They want to take the limelight away. It's just that they want to represent their country so badly, Cameron.
2: No, and that's just it. And I could probably tell you, like, uh, Ben Johnson, although he was disgraced afterwards, or Donovan Bailey... Um, you know, some of the swimming medals that uh, we've got as well. Um, The Golden Goal, uh, like I remember where I was for all of those uh, moments. And watching the sledge hockey on TV on TSN is usually where I would uh, watch uh, that. Um, But the Paralympic coverage um, online or on TV is a lot better now than when I first started to watch or be interested in the Paralympics. Um, so there there aren't as many, unfortunately, Paralympic moments that I remember. But I remember when Renee or uh, she was competing in uh, at the uh, Paralympics. Uh, this would have been, I think, four years ago. And we all went to a restaurant slash pub in Brampton. And they decorated it with Canadian flags. And we had our Canadian T-shirts on. And we were all, like, um, watching Renee compete at the Paralympics. So, um you know, like, uh, there's a lot of Olympic and Paralympic moments. Uh, Kyle Petty, a good friend of mine, uh, that's another one where I remember, you know, I don't remember if it was the actual, um, if it was online for his actual throws or if it was afterwards that I saw some highlights. But, like, I, I can tell you where I was for all of those. And it was such a great experience. And you just, you, f- it's so you feel so Canadian or you feel like you're right there with it. And it's just, it's an awesome feeling. So I can't actually imagine what it's like for the athletes. It's, and, you know, so, you know, kind of wrapping it up from my perspective, you know, I'm talking about all these moments with Paralympics and Olympics, and they were all amateurs. Um, So it's, I don't know, it's something Different when it's an amateur athlete that wins a gold medal, I think, compared to a professional athlete, because professional athletes, they're paid a lot of money and they get it for 82 games or 18 games or however long their year goes. So I, th- I think there's just something more magical when it's an amateur that you know, they may be getting some endorsements and such, but when when they're not getting, you know, the big endorsement deals and they win a gold for their country, um, I just think there's something a lot more special in those moments uh, than when a professional uh, player, uh, you know, wins something at the Olympics.
0: There, there also can be a lot on the line for uh, somebody uh, at the Olympics and Paralympic Games. And I want to tell you a story of... Someone that I uh, competed alongside from Great Britain. He's uh, been top ten in his category for a very long time, and he's in and around my age. And when he came in, we were we were in and around the same age. I was a little bit older than him when he came in, um, but he was like the next phenob of you know bocce in uh, in in the sport and he was from Great Britain his name was uh, David Smith we've had him on the program uh, uh, once uh, I believe it was on the video side of things Um, and and uh, he just knows how to play and knows how to do every tournament he's in the top you know top half of his 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 division and everybody oh there's David Smith again doing his thing and being a part of it and, and and just being at the top. And, he you know, he's going to get more endorsements from the UK because the UK recognizes Parasports like they should and and he would get endorsements. And I remember in the London 2012 um, tournament, they changed the, the format. And it was when you were playing individual you would play a game and if you won, you would advance on. And if you lost, you would be done. And David Smith lost within his first couple of rounds. I'm not sure if it was the first match or not, but it was definitely the first couple. And I remember him getting off the court and he was inconsolable because he knew that he had just lost a substantial amount of money for that year and that time because he did not perform the way he should have or the government felt that he should have. He had a target to meet and he did not meet it. And when sports becomes your life and your livelihood and something goes wrong, even as an amateur, Cameron, that can really put some pressure on you. He's come back since and, and, you know, making his money and doing his thing. But for that one year, he knew that he was in a lot of trouble. So as much as sports can be fun and and all that, it can also add a substantial amount of pressure, especially to those amateurs who don't have something like the NBA or NHL or any sport to go back to and say, I'll just make my millions over here. No big deal.
2: Oh, 100%. And that's why when you're an amateur athlete, if you don't win that gold, um, you're not necessarily going to get the endorsement deals and it'd be interesting to see even if you get a silver medal at the uh, Olympics or a bronze medal. Um, what your endorsement deals would look like i certainly don't think it would be as good as it was uh if it was a gold and it also depends on the discipline that you're doing um you know if you win a gold in the 100 meter um you know uh track and field finals then all of a sudden yeah like that's known all around the world as the fastest person or the fastest man or the fastest woman so you know you're going to because it's a it's a higher uh, looked at um, dis- discipline. Everyone
0: knows what you're yeah. talking about, and right? Like in the 100 meters, everyone is aware of it. So yeah, there's more eyeballs on it. Yeah, for sure.
2: It. And there's more people watching and um, probably the advertising dollars that you have to spend on the commercial during the 100 meter final is probably a lot more than uh, some other discipline that a lot of people don't really care about. So uh, there's so many yeah. different factors as far as that goes, but... You know, at the end of the day, it's, uh, and I don't know exactly how it works, but I'm sure that athletes or, um, within their, um, Discipline that they're doing and the sport that they're doing. I'm sure that, let's say it's Rowing Canada, I'm sure Rowing Canada tries to get sponsorships so they can get their athletes over there um, and to pay for certain things like hotel or food or, you know, whatever that goes. Or, um, you know, hoping to get somebody to sponsor them so they can train. Um, So maybe they can take more time off of work to be able to train or, you know, just for their training expenses. So uh, I don't know exactly how it works, but yeah, like, I don't know. I think that's what makes it even more special because not just, well, for professional athletes, they get paid to practice, they get paid to train, they get paid, you know, and then they go to the Olympics and they've already been training really hard because that's their job. Whereas, you know, uh, an athlete that is amateur, it's their well, it's their side job, but they're not yeah. paid getting to do it unless they are able to get sponsorships. And to be able to sacrifice, you know, a lot of times you're having to sacrifice doing things with your family. If you have a wife and kids, um, you know, sacrificing hanging out with your friends or maybe uh, not going to the restaurant or the bar because you don't want to, you know, drink too much. You don't want to eat the wrong foods. um, You're sacrificing a lot um, and not getting paid for it. So I don't know. To me, that's just why it's more special, I guess, if it's an amateur athlete that gets a goal considering or compared to a professional athlete.
0: The the goal during my career was always if I could break even between my carding and the money that was spent, I, I would be a happy person. I, I can remember you know we would get uh, two thousand dollars a month uh, for for 12 months so that's uh, uh, you know uh, substantial quite quite a quite a bit of money but when people um, think about that and they say oh you're getting paid you know so much money per per month to to do this and then I would say yeah but my expenses outweigh what I make if I was left with a couple thousand dollars at the end of the year, you know, I remember I bought a fifty-inch uh, television screen in like 2011, uh, which was big money, and because I had the money left over, but that purchase made it so that that was it. I was done. It was it was over. Like that was my expenses, and then you do it all over again. And I think people, as you so well put, people sacrifice so much money and so much time and for me it's not even about the money that I that I regret you know spending it's the time that I missed I missed you know the the birth of my first nephew when I was at the Paralympic Games which I wouldn't take back but there's just those moments that you can't get back and you know people say oh but you got to travel to England you got to travel to Portugal if I could tell you how many sites i saw in yeah, you know, all look. those places so those places that i went to uh maybe one you know when i went to england we saw big ben and and uh, buckingham palace and we were there for 17 days and of that i saw two things yeah. you know uh that's just the life of an athlete and the life of the way that it is and i think it's harder than people realize it is oh it
2: is and i remember um talking with uh, uh a friend of mine and you know him, Ryan Bennett. And it, w- it seems like it was within the past few weeks we were talking about this. And it's exactly what you brought up. And I'm like, so Ryan, like you've been to Birmingham, you've been to here, you've been to there, but like how many actual sites did you see while you were there? Or was it like you get to the airport, you go to the hotel, you go to the stadium and you know, go back to the hotel and then back to the airport and then you're gone because sometimes you're there just a weekend or whatever. And he's like, yeah, most of the times, yeah, like we don't see anything at all. It's we get we, you know, get off the plane, we get on a bus or a van or whatever to go to either um, the stadium or um, where we're the where we're staying, the hotel. Um, We have all of our team meetings there and you've got to do this, you got to do that and you got to practice and then you got to go back to bed and eat and sleep and repeat. And So, yeah, like you don't like, it's nice that you get to say you competed in all of these places, but you're there for business. You're not there to sightsee per se, unless you do have some time off to be able to, to do that, but you're there for business. You're there to win a medal. And so you're there for work. So Yeah, like a lot of people, they can say they've been to all these luxurious places and they've been to the Olympics. But how much time have you actually gone and been able to see where you are at? Not many times.
0: (laughs) And two things come to mind. The more time you have off at international events, two things come to mind. One, you didn't get as deep into the event as you wanted to. (laughs) And two, you need rest and recovery. You know, if you've got time off and you're done at 12, you're going back and resting and recovering. So for me to circle on this whole conversation, you have to know that the professionals want to do this for the love of the game and the love of their country, not necessarily to take away or to, to steal from. They do it because they love and want to do it for their country. And I think that's sort of the, the big the big moment.
2: especially if they've got to go to a place like China or somewhere around the world where their clock is going to be off like huge and they've got to adjust to that time and then they've got to be able to play the best – I'll say hockey because, you know, that's what I'm most interested in when people go to the Olympics is uh, the professional hockey players. Um, So they've got to get used to the time change and stuff. And then when they are done, they've got to go back home – and how much time do they have to, like, do they have off before they can actually join their teams again? And they've got to get used to the time change again. Like, it mess. I, like, I just go on vacation to Dominican or Cuba, and I think that's like an hour or two. And, you know, when I get home, the time change messes me up. Might be the all inclusive alcohol, too. I'm not going to lie, mm-hmm. but I'm going to go with mostly it's the time change. Of course. And it just messes you up so bad.
0: Yeah. I remember the, um, the beds in uh, Beijing and before we went to Beijing you were hearing from some of the uh, professional basketball players that were saying my goodness these beds are, are not very long for me to, to to sleep on and so they would be <laughs> hanging off the end of them and and I remember seven th- footers <laughs> I remember <laughs> I remember thinking how small can these beds be let me tell you those seven footers we're not on much of that bed. I mean, this is not a lavish situation that they were in because, again, to your point and well put, what pays their bills? What pays their bills is the NHL. What pays their bills is the NBA. So you can't say to a Greg Popovich, you can't say, well, I need 10 days off because, you know, I just spent time at the Olympics. That was a you choice. I didn't force you as your coach to go there. You chose... Now, you got to play for your team that you are getting paid to play with. I just think that that's that's just the way it is. And so, you know, I yeah. I mean, what what more can you say other than yeah, it's just it is what it is. And and I think sort of to to close off this this chat, the last time we've seen um we've seen NHL uh participants at the games was Pyeongchang, and they haven't returned since. Uh, do you see a world where they come back or is Gary Batman too worried about the NHL and not so worried about the Olympic games?
2: Oh, hundred percent. They're going to come back, but it's going to be in this time zone uh, because it's a lot easier on the players and their bodies and the time change. um, If it's back in this time zone or maybe within a couple of hours of this time zone, Uh, when you start getting a 12 hour time difference, um, and the games are going to be played in the middle of the night, um, why is the NHL going to sacrifice your players when a lot of people aren't going to even be watching it? And if they do watch it, um, it's just going to be a repeat. It's not going to be during when they actually play. So um, those are just some of the factors and I'm sure Gary Batman looks at to say, why am I going to put the NHL players over here when there's such a huge time difference um, when, you know, a lot of people aren't going to be watching it live. Why am I going to be sacrificing, you know, the players of the NHL?
0: And it's all about the almighty dollar. And if Gary Bettman or any commissioner Mm -hmm. has to shut down their league for 12, 14, 15 days, then it's a nightmare on the schedulers. And it's a nightmare on people's pocketbooks. And I know that, like, listen, they're going to say, oh, they make millions and millions of dollars, which they do. I'm not disputing that, but Mm -hmm. also the money lost in those, 12 to 14 days to do that shutdown is also within the millions and some billions because revenues say, well, we're not going to have any, you know, hockey games. So I'm not going to pay my advertising dollars to, 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 to do that when, you know, I'm not going to do that. So everybody loses in that moment. And I'm not trying to sit here and say, Cameron, Oh, we should play the, you know, the small violin for the NHL and the money they're missing. But I, I think they're fine. I'm playing the small island. It's 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 <laughs> not just that hard for people to lose that amount of money. You know, like they're used to a certain live stream oh. salary cap hasn't gone up because of the pandemic. It's supposed to go up a little bit, but not a lot. When the salary cap doesn't go up a lot, that means that you know you're not able to put a, as good of a team because people demand money. Except like there's all kinds of reasons why. These things happen. Health of the
2: athletes. Yeah. If you have to, like, and I, I don't know, I, I I wish I could remember, but when the NHL shuts down for a couple of weeks for the Olympics, do they end up still having an 82-game schedule? Yeah, they do. Or do yeah. they ha- have less? So they still have an 82-game, so they're still getting the money. Uh, however, they're having to shorten that time period, um, and that can really hurt the health of the players because if they're playing too much, they might blow out a knee or an ankle or who knows what that could blow out um, if they're playing a lot of games within a shorter period of time too. And I would think, especially for the NHL, everyone thinks that it goes on way too long now because a lot of the times it's not until June that the uh, Stanley Cup is uh, awarded, end of May, beginning of June. So, you know, like June is starting to be summertime. You don't want to be playing in June uh, you want to be enjoying the sunshine and stuff so um but that's going to happen um if the olympics aren't going on if the olympics are going on like what are they going to do it into july like yeah. i love hockey but i don't want to be watching hockey in july no and
0: and i think that speaks to the whole point of jamal murray of the denver nuggets which we talked about in the uh, in 100%. the in the headlines is that That's why, because he's looking at it going, guys, I just finished in June, and now the country suffers because he's not willing to risk an injury because the Denver Nuggets pay him far more money than uh, Basketball Canada would, even if we're looking at advertising revenue dollars, all those things. So those are the reasons, and one of the things that just makes me just really cringe every year it's like when we get to the stanley cup final we have to have you know seven games in like 16 days why does it have to stretch out so long because they want it to drag on and on and on which is why it ends up in june it's like no can we get seven games in in like you know
2: 10 days 14 days you know it's Brock, I kind of understand about that uh, because if you have a team that's out east and then a team that's on the west coast, once again, you have the travel time, you have the time difference. I can understand why they may give a day or two off uh, for traveling. Um So I, I can under, kind of understand that. But if it's two Eastern Conference teams, and I don't even know if that's possible to have the Stanley Cup final that way. But if there are two teams relatively close and there's not a huge time difference or not a big travel day, then I don't understand why they can't uh, get it done in, like, 14 days, uh, you know, because you could play a game, have a day off, play a game, have a day off. So if it's going to go the full seven, that would be 14 days, and I'd be okay with that.
0: It's when they stretch it into, like, oh, you're traveling. Like, the NBA did this where they'd have, instead of a day off, they'd have three days off between a couple, and it's just, it's not... To me, it's not appropriate. It's yeah, you're saving injury, but to me, I don't even think that's the main reason. I think it's more stretch it out, make it build, etc. For me, get it done as soon as possible without injury playing a factor. I'm not suggesting play seven games in seven nights, but doing it in 14 to 16, sometimes 17, is a bit much. Well, that is the end of our program for this week. I would like to thank cam jenkins i'd also like to thank jordan steves who is our technical producer our regular technical producer is mark Afalo. our podcast coordinator is ryan delahanty tune in next week because you just never know what happens when you enter the neutral zone be safe be well